This is Gary Vitaco Robles. The following is a special edition of Maryland Behind the Icon, a dramatic podcast adaptation of my two-volume biography, Icon, The Life, Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe. Season one of our podcast explored in detail Marilyn Monroe's psychiatric hospitalizations in 1961, 18 months before her death, her childhood, and family history, all from a mental health perspective and based upon decades of research and my background as a licensed mental health counselor. In order to understand what really happened to Marilyn at the end of her life, it's necessary to return to her beginnings, her family history of mental illness, her childhood traumas, and her early life experiences. In this special season-ending episode, we are revisiting the last 24 hours of Marilyn's remarkable life, a fascinating yet inaccurately reported period. You've heard the outlandish narratives, narratives based upon misinformation, unsubstantiated rumor, and outright lies. We offer a fresh new narrative based upon my decades of painstaking research, rich in information never before depicted in previous narratives of Marilyn's last days. Afterwards, I'll return with co-producers Nina Bosky and Randall Libero to unpack and break down the dramatic scenes in this episode to reveal what we believe happened to Marilyn. Friday, August 3rd, 1962, the day before Marilyn Monroe's death. She receives a phone call from her press agent and friend, Patricia Newcomb. Oh, that's probably Pat, Mrs. Murray. I'll take it in the bedroom. Come on, Map, honey. <clears throat> Hello? Hi, Marilyn, it's Pat. I- <clears throat> I don't think I'll be able to spend the weekend with you like we planned. No? Unfortunately, I have a really bad case of bronchitis. (laughs) Oh, but this is just the right place to get rid of it. You can lie out by the pool and relax and we can talk. And then later I'll get the desert air lamp for you to use tonight. Uh, We'll bake those germs right out of you. That does sound like it might make me feel better. When I leave the office, I'll drive over. (laughs) (coughs) What are your plans for the rest of the day? Well, I have an appointment with my internist, and then a session with Dr. Greenson, and then off to run a few errands. Okay, Marilyn, I'll see you tonight. (coughs) After attending her sessions with Dr. Hyman Engelberg and Dr. Ralph Greenson, Marilyn stops at the San Vicente Pharmacy near her home. Our next stop is the pharmacy. All right, we're on our way. Okay. Just sit back and relax, Miss Marilyn. I uh, drew the curtains in the side windows so you can rest on our drive. That's sweet of you. Pharmacy. Seems like we were just there a little more than a week ago. 
Uh, downtown traffic's a bit busier than usual today, so it might take a while, <sighs> but your trusty Rudy will get you there. Oh, and uh, please let me know if you'd like the radio volume turned down. All right. And my tears are all too late. I won't sleep tonight. I will weep tonight. But the years filled with tears could not put this right. For I've lost you. I have lost you. All right, here we are. Now I go. Take my hand. That's it. I'll see you in a few minutes. <laughs> May I help you, miss? <clears throat> uh, collecting prescriptions from Dr. Hyman Engelberg. Miss Monroe, Bithalina Drive. Yes, Miss Monroe. Let me check. Ah, purchase order 12905, prescription number 20857. That's for Fenergan, 25 units, and there's also a refill for Nebutal from July 25th. That's right. The original prescription for Nebutal was last dispensed on July 25th, along with a refill of 25 units of the chloral hydrate. Purchase orders 13137 and 13004. Nebutol and chloral hydrate. July 25th. Why, that that was only nine days ago. Correct. Mm. Uh, one moment, please. Let's see. Uh, here's the bag. I'll charge your account as usual. All right, then. Will there be anything else? Miss Monroe. No, that's all. Thank you. We're changing things up in this episode. Usually after our episodes, my co-producers and I break down the episode in the companion podcast that you're familiar with, Norma Jean Discovering Truths. However, we're going to listen to three scenes, and after each scene, we're going to break them down with our discussion. So now I'm going to be joined directly by my co-producers, and I'll allow them to introduce themselves. Hi, Gary. This is Randall Libero. Hi, and I'm Nina Bosky. I think some people are going to be expecting the whole day of her life. And what we did is we picked several scenes of her last day. When you experience these scenes, part of the reasons why we're doing this is that sometimes to understand the mystery of her death, you've got to start at the beginning. But we're trying to give you some little pebbles here that you can start to connect the dots. Because as human beings, 
we are not just one dimensional. And I think a lot of times in these documentaries, they try to put Marilyn in a box and they try to make her one way. And you're going to see an experience that just like all of us, we have a variety of emotions during the day. So with that said, go for it, Randall. Gary, let's start with the medications, the two medications, Nebutol mm-hmm. and chloral hydrate that you say killed Marilyn. Can you tell us more about these medications? Sure, Randall. Nembitol is just a brand name for pentobarbital, and this is a very dangerous barbiturate that can uh, sedate someone and create total anesthesia. Coral hydrate, on the other hand, is a benzodiazepine, and that class of drugs replace barbiturates in the treatment of anxiety and insomnia. It's addictive, but it's less dangerous in an overdose. But in combination, these two drugs, nembutol and chloral hydrate, are lethal, and they should never have been concurrently prescribed by Dr. Engelberg. Is it true that Hyman Engelberg prescribed these medications that killed Marilyn? Didn't he deny prescribing them or, or some of them? Well, if we go back to the original investigation in 1962, in the Los Angeles Police Department's death report, Engelberg admitted to police of having prescribed the refill of Nembutal. This was a month's supply of medication refilled only nine days after the original prescription. So Engelberg essentially provided Marilyn with an access to a lethal supply of medication. Now, 20 years later, during the Los Angeles District Attorney's reinvestigation into her death, Engelberg denied on audio recording ever having prescribed the chloral hydrate. And you probably can find this on YouTube right now. That is the one. He, he told investigator Al Tomich, I knew nothing about chloral hydrate. I never used chloral hydrate. In the documentary, Marilyn Monroe, The Final Years, Engelberg also asserted, I never gave her chloral hydrate. She must have bought it in Tijuana, Mexico. But, you know, in more recent years, in Engelberg's later days, I corresponded with him when I was researching my book. And he was very clear with me in our correspondence that he never prescribed the chloral hydrate to Marilyn. Oh, Gary, Gary, Gary. Little did he know the internet was right around the corner. The corner, exactly. This was was in the early 2000s. And he was in his 90s living um, in a nursing facility. So and his statements are downright lies. Yeah, they are. And, and simply because they're so provable at this point. And, you know, who would have ever thought that back in 20 years later in the late 90s that it's on display for everybody to see now. And, you know, the other thing you have to look back at that time in 1962, Marilyn Monroe and every other celebrity was being given these very, very powerful and potent drugs that could kill you. And they, they would interlace them with these vitamin B shots, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yes. know, and so back then, the way that they conducted, you know, medicine and, and how they would doctor was very different than it would be today. But both Engelbert and Dr. Greenson, in my opinion, given what happened with Michael Jackson, would definitely be brought up on charges today not back in 1962, but certainly in today's standards. Well, definitely Engelberg, because he was prescribing these large quantities of dangerous medication. It's interesting that Greenson kind of sidestepped. They had an agreement, these two doctors, that Engelberg would be the prescriber. And uh, we'll hear later in our discussion how Greenson was more of the monitor of the medications. Not to say he never prescribed them, but he was not the primary prescriber. And the doctors are supposed to be consulting and communicating with each other 
for Maryland's safety. So let me ask you, I mean, besides the internet and what we now know, is there any other evidence that supports that Engelberg had definitely lied? There's a mountain of evidence that he lied. <laughs> first, <laughs> first of all, if you look back in magazines of the era, you might remember Barry Feinstein's famous photograph, the close-up of the bottle of chloral hydrate. In a very close-up image, I believe Feinstein took it with a telephoto lens through the window of Marilyn's sunroom, and it's on her tea table along with a swan ashtray and a pencil holder. Many people believe that was Marilyn's nightstand, but it wasn't. That was a table in her sunroom. And Engelberg's name is clear as day on the label of Maryland's chloral hydrate bottle. And this, this was this was published in Life magazine and in Paris Match. You can Google it right now and find it. And so in the years since Maryland's death, Engelberg's prescriptions, as well as the prescriptions of other doctors who prescribed to her, uh, but the chloral hydrate prescriptions that were issued in 1962 have gone to auction. These are the facts. Engelberg lied. Engelberg was culpable, and he likely was covering up for himself. You know, in this episode, it's not really, you know, we've done an investigation series and stuff, so it's not an investigative series that we're doing in this in this show. But you want to sit there and, and say to yourself, you know, so much has been put on the Kennedys, the mob, you know, all of this other stuff. Yeah. And there's evidence speaking to these two doctors that Engelbert, who definitely lied, but then you have Greenson, who's a total enabler, right? You know, there's the way that they prescribed medicine and took care of Marilyn, again, in today's standards, you know, even though Greenson didn't prescribe the medicine, the way that he would conduct his therapy sessions and have Marilyn over to his house. I mean, there was just a With lot of family. And, yeah, there was just a yeah. lot of uh, different players. So it's just really interesting when you think about the evidence that is so there in front of us, and yet it gets overlooked time and time again. And to your point, Nina, uh, we've allowed ourselves to be distracted by the conspiracy theories and the other personalities more distant to Marilyn. And those have overshadowed the closest circle where you should really start in an investigation and look yeah. for responsibility. And, you know, there's this belief that sometimes the simplest explanation is probably the most accurate one. And unfortunately, <laughs> that we, we tend to believe these conspiracy right. theories, which are extremely complex and convoluted. So, you know, the rumors about the Kennedys and the mob and all of these others removes the spotlight from the very people who were providing Marilyn with who were close to her arsenal. Who yes, were these, close to her. these were her nearest, dearest, close. And, and isn't that yeah. any the way any police investigation starts? It starts with the spouse, the family, and moves yep. outwards. And I think this is just important to give some context in regards to the, the pills that Marilyn was actually picking up that day, you know, the last day of her life. Can you set up the scene, our next uh, experience of the last day of Marilyn's life? As people know, at that point in her life, there was a lot going on in terms of 20th Century Fox Studios and her termination from Fox and the reasons around that. But what happened after that is what we're going to show you in this scene. And it's a conversation between Pat Newcomb and Marilyn about everything going on in her career. And it's a business conversation 
that they have. And we have this scene because we want to give you an idea of emotionally what Marilyn was going through dealing with everything in her life. And Patricia Newcomb, for those of you who are just listening in, was her PR agent for the Arthur Jacobs Agency. So let's uh, check this next scene out. It's another part of Marilyn's last day. In the early afternoon of Saturday, August 4th, 1962, Marilyn Monroe lounges with her press agent, Patricia Newcomb, by the pool of her Brentwood Hacienda. Sick from bronchitis, the press agent discusses with Marilyn a strategy to generate positive publicity for Marilyn's return to the film from which 20th Century Fox had fired her. Fox Studios had mounted an aggressive publicity campaign against Marilyn in the wake of her termination. The studio's motivation was to justify firing Marilyn based upon the allegation that she was unable to perform and to support an insurance claim for recouping their financial investment in the film they alleged she was functionally unable to complete. In an attempt to clear her name and repair damage to her professional reputation and career, Marilyn may have leveraged Robert Kennedy to exert his influence through a Kennedy family friend who served on Fox's board of directors. Here's a glimpse into what might have been their conversation. Now, regarding your return to the studio, Bobby Kennedy was right about leveraging Samuel Rosenman on Fox's board of directors. <laughs> How convenient that Rosenman was a friend of Joe Kennedy. I think they both served in the Roosevelt administration. I was worth all my calls to Bobby at the Justice Department. I'm glad the board terminated Milton Gould. He got what he deserved after firing me. But I'm happy that Rosenman was able to convince the rest of the board to hire me back. You won, Marilyn? Okay, so... Here's where we stand. Zanuck will be back in control of the studio. <coughs> and the studio needs your film finished in time for a Christmas release so it can recoup some of the money lost on Cleopatra. Leverage that, Marilyn. Well, my attorney said we can probably finalize a negotiation so that I can get back to work. And I'll get a bonus of $500,000. But I want Cucor replaced with Jean Neglesco. And I want to go back to the Nunley Johnson script, not those rewrites. Marilyn, get this film in the can. And do one more film for Fox with Arthur Jacobs. Then you're a free agent. You'll have more control of your career after that. That's what I want. But now that I'm approaching middle age, I must do something different. Well, Doris Day and Lana Turner are both older than you. And they're still getting good material. I know. But what I really want are roles that are... Oh, got more depth. Like, um, Marie Dressler, remember her? Character roles. So I'll be able to continue working into my 40s and 50s. Like Bet in All About Eve. You're certainly ready for it. We've got several offers already. Your fame has kept you top of the list. Yes, Pat. But I meant what I said to Richard Merriman in life. Well, I live in my work in a few relationships with the few people I can count on. Fame will go by. 
It's something I've experienced, but not where I live. Uh, all right. By the way, Larry Schiller, the photographer, called this week. Hmm. He was here this morning. He came here? He certainly did. He dropped by unannounced on his way to Palm Springs. He told me you nixed the photos of Playboy. You weren't authorized to tell him that. That is my decision. It's risky, Marilyn. It's a Playboy cover. We must be careful. Well, I realize that. But to play devil's advocate, it would overshadow Liz Taylor's love life that's been splashed on the covers of every magazine. Look, I've already launched a robust publicity campaign for you. You will replace Liz on those covers. <laughs> this week, your life interview was released. And you're already on the cover of Paris Match. And life has that advertising campaign with those large newsstand cards of you and scenes from Something's Gotta Give. You should see their display at LAX. Joe told me he saw it when he left for San Francisco to go to that all-timers baseball game. And coming down the pike are the September issue of Vogue with your fabulous Burt Stearns fashion spread and the Cosmopolitan photo essay by George Barris. All this coverage will send a very positive message. Stern's pictures are so elegant, and George's pictures are casual and youthful. The image you want, right? But, Pat, it's Playboy's 10th anniversary issue, and I was on the cover of its first issue. So the concept is for you to pose demurely on the cover in a short see-through teddy nightgown? Yes, but I'll be clutching a long white fur coat to cover the front of my body. And the back cover will be another pose of you taken from behind at the same time as the front pose. Exactly. Only the back cover, my behind, will be visible in a see-through teddy. Oh, Marilyn. At this point in your career, it contradicts your goal to be taken seriously as an actress. I know. It's a tough decision. To still be relying on my body at this point in my career. I'm sorry, Pat. I haven't been able to sleep in days. When I can't sleep, I can't think straight. It's tricky, Marilyn. I know. But let's give it more thought. Look, I know it's important to you. But make Playboy wait for your decision about the photos. That will give you power. All right. That makes sense. Wow, that was a pretty intense scene. So uh, we're picking up our conversation in this last day episode of Marilyn's Life. And I'm joined again by my collaborators, Gary and Nina. Gary, there's a lot of speculation on Marilyn's mood that last day of her life. Was she happy? Was she depressed? So what, what do we know? Well, the conspiracy theorists have offered outlandish speculation about her mood that day. But what, what do we know factually? So what we know is that Marilyn had experienced a severe depressive episode in the late spring of 1962 while she was in production on Something's Got to Give. And this was when Dr. Greenson traveled to Europe and Israel, and she went into crisis. 
And following that, she was terminated from the film. And so she remained in a depressive episode um, right after she was terminated. She was described as agitated, um, paranoid of the intentions of, of others. And so the suicide prevention team, when they investigated her death, they spoke to the psychiatrist who treated her in New York and Los Angeles. So they spoke to Dr. Marianne Chris, who was her psychiatrist for many years in New York until 1961, and the doctors who treated her at Payne Whitney Psychiatric Institute and uh, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. And they concluded, and I'm going to quote this directly from their report, Marilyn Monroe had suffered from psychiatric disturbances for a long time. She experienced severe fears and frequent depressions. Mood changes were abrupt and unpredictable. Among symptoms of disorganization, sleep disturbances were prominent, for which she had been taking sedative drugs for many years. She was thus familiar and experienced in the use of sedative drugs and well aware of their dangers. So um, according to Dr. Engelberg in his last years and in his correspondence with me, uh, and he said that uh, he, he and Dr. Greenson were both aware that Marilyn was suffering from what was called at the time manic depression, which we now know as bipolar disorder or the bipolar disorder well, spectrum. And Gary, you also talk about this in relation to mixed episodes, and you had to educate me on this because I had no idea what that term meant. So what does that mean as it relates to Marilyn's case? In bipolar disorder, there are episodes of depression, which I think we could more readily recognize, and mania or hypomania. And that part of the illness is characterized more by impulsivity, poor judgment, irritability, the inability to sleep. And a lot of people have challenged me on um, perceiving Marilyn's disorder as on the bipolar spectrum. But I think what really seals the deal on that is her sleep disturbances. Joan Greenson and others have said that, especially that last summer of her life, her main challenge was she just couldn't sleep. She couldn't sleep for days and days and days. And this is why she turned to the medications and why she abused the prescription drugs, just trying to sleep. And that is a clear sign of mania uh, or hypomania. The mixed episode is when someone experiences both depression and mania or hypomania at the same time. And that is particularly dangerous because folks in that state are more at risk for taking their lives because they're severely depressed, but now they have the poor judgment and the impulsivity to actually take action. A point I'd like to make about um, that last summer for Marilyn is the betrayal she really felt by her home studio. I think when people talk about, you know, Marilyn um, looking forward in, to the future and all of her plans, that that is true. But this was also a time where Marilyn was aging and her contract was ending. She only had two final commitments for Fox. What Something's Got to Give was one film and then she owed this studio another film after that. And once that second commitment was uh, completed, she would become a free agent. And so that could afford her a great amount of freedom and artistic control over the work that she wanted to do. But I could imagine at the same time, that can also be frightening to a person who's worked in the studio system and um, someone who's facing middle age 
You know, we know from yeah. from Marilyn's letters that she really wanted to get back into a production company with Lee Strasberg and Marlon Brando. And not only did she want to produce her own films outside of Fox now, but to produce the films of others. But the studio itself, who had supported her in her ascent to fame and success, they were now trying to take her down. They yeah. had to justify firing her and they... Rather than complete the film, what they really wanted was to collect on the insurance money. So if they can portray her as unfit to work and unstable, they can collect that money and not have to complete the film. And that could um, offset the tremendous losses that Cleopatra was costing them. But they did this at the cost of Marilyn's professional reputation and her livelihood. And And some things never change too, because if you think about the Hollywood today, look at how quickly somebody's reputation can be damaged because now we have social media and it happens in just uh, one minute and things have changed overnight. So I can only imagine how challenging that would be. I want to make one more point here about something that we put in that why she was calling Robert Kennedy. And we have that in the beginning of the scene. It was to resolve the situation with Fox. She was looking for any leverage she could have to get this situation decided in her favor. So these repeated calls to the Justice Department in Washington was an attempt to get with Kennedy to to secretly work toward helping her in, in some capacity with Fox. And so If you didn't catch that, go back and listen to the beginning of the scene again, because we mentioned exactly how Kennedy was actually successful at doing that. And it makes sense that Kennedy would want to assist her because one of the reasons that Fox used for terminating Marilyn was that she left the production to appear at President Kennedy's birthday gala. Now, she did have permission in advance to leave early. I think she only missed about two days and then she got ill and wasn't able to come back to work. But they were using that to show that she was breaching her contract. And so this was a command performance. You know, the Kennedy family, the Democratic Party wanted her there for the success of this fundraiser. So, you know, this was a way that Kennedy could assist her. And it seems likely that might have happened because the board of Fox in New York Uh, during that time period made some very strong decisions that terminated some of the executives who were in charge that would open the way for Marilyn to renegotiate and come back. And many people believe uh, inaccurately that those negotiations were finalized. They were never in writing. They were close to finalization, but they... They were in talks. And I think the other thing that I think is really important for this, guys, is that we hear over and over again, Bobby Kennedy was talking to Marilyn Monroe. So guess what? It's not what you think. It yeah. <laughs> very clearly about the fact that, you know, she was fired and she was more concerned about her career than any guy in her life at that time. Yes, so I think absolutely. we have to put that into that context. But we have one more scene. I have to say, listening to this scene was, it's, it's, it was challenging for me. Um, to listen to it. And it's just a, a clip, but it it definitely, it is towards the end of Marilyn's life. And we wanted to give you the context of, of this portion of her life too, because this is the one that uh, passed this one phone call. We didn't hear anything left uh, in terms of Marilyn's voice and what she would say anymore and, not, and definitely not on the screen anymore. So it was one of the, I don't know about you guys, but uh, for me, it was a really uh, hard, hard scene to listen to. 
I would have to agree with you, Nina. These are these are Marilyn's last moments of consciousness. And um, unfortunately, she was connected through the telephone with someone who was unable to help her or rescue her. Randall, why don't you uh, set us up for this next scene? Well, as you said, it was a phone call. And the person on the other end of the line was Peter Lawford. Before nine o'clock on the evening of Saturday, August 4th, 1962, Marilyn is on her deathbed, receiving what might have been her last telephone call from actor Peter Lawford. Marilyn, uh, we missed you this evening. Peter. Marilyn? What's that? Peter. Yes, go on. Peter. Uh-huh. Stop what, what was that? Prop. What did you say? Marilyn? Marilyn! Hello? Hello? Oh, Jesus Christ! Hello? Damn it! Operator? I yes, I'm trying to reach a friend who may be in distress, but I, I can't reach her. Can you check it? Yes, sir. Number, please. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, granite six, one, eight, nine, zero. Four, seven, six, one, eight, nine, zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One moment, please. Please. Hurry. Sir, there's no conversation on the line. The handset must be off the cradle. Oh, my God. Thank you, operator. Oh, my God! Milt Evans. Milton! It's Peter! I just got home, Peter. What's wrong? God, I was talking to Marilyn on the phone, and uh, her voice faded out, and I... I tried calling back! But the line is busy. She's probably talking to somebody else. No, 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 no. I, I, I called the operator, and she said the phone is off the hook. I, I must get over to Marilyn's house. She may be in distress. Peter, you are in no condition to drive. You know, she may be taking too many pills. Oh, God. Oh, she may have been drinking. Oh. Damn it to hell, I wish Pat was here. She'd know what to do. Your wife is in Hyannisport with her family. Leave her out of this, Peter. Oh, God. Oh. Oh, please, drive me to Marilyn's house. I, I, I want to go there right away. I think something terrible is happening now. Peter, Peter, hold your horses. You're the president's brother-in-law. You'll go over there. And she's drunk or drugged or something. There'll be headlines all over the place. 
you'll get yourself involved in a mess. No, no, I tell you, man, something's wrong. She sounds different. She's out of it. Listen to me. You're gonna open a can of worms. I'm your agent. I have a responsibility to you. I tell you what, let me call Mickey Rudin. He's her attorney. And his brother-in-law is her psychiatrist. I'll ask them to go to her house. Oh, God. Would you hurry? Call him now. Please, Milt. Now, for God's sakes. Ah, oh, shit. Bloody hell. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you've had a chance to give some thought to what you just heard. And we're going to break it down. So once again, I'm joined by my collaborators, Nina and Gary. And we're going to discuss why we put the scene in the show for you and what we would like you to kind of glean from it since there's been so much conversation about these hours of Marilyn's life and speculation. So let's look at, first of all, the facts behind this moment of time. So Gary, can you start us off with what was going on with Peter Lawford? Well, Marilyn's true friend in the Lawford family was actually Patricia Kennedy Lawford. She had known Pat Lawford for probably a, a little over a year, and she had a connection with her. Peter, she had known professionally over the years, but according to Rupert Allen, her one of her press agents, she never really trusted Peter Lawford. And so her, her connection was truly to Pat, but Pat was out of town. She was visiting her family in Hyannisport, and Lawford was a bachelor that weekend and had invited over many friends. And earlier that day, around five o'clock, he had invited Marilyn to join them for some Chinese takeout dinner, is what we believe. And Marilyn um, was kind of uncommittal, uh, uh, uncommitting to that invitation. He then called her back. Uh, later, and she begged off. And so as the evening progressed, and some of the guests were leaving, Lawford was concerned about Marilyn. And so he gave her a call. And in that conversation, he went on record to say that her voice faded away, and the phone went dead. And then he was unable to reach her because now the line was busy. 
And with um, operator intervention, he learned that the phone was off the hook. So he was engaging anyone he could in checking on Marilyn. And uh, Lawford was very heavily into alcohol, as was his wife. And so we took some liberty as well in depicting him in this state of uh, intoxication, which was later verified uh, by Milton Evans, his agent, uh, whom we've heard in the scene. And so there were other people over at the house that night who have gone on record and discussed it with biographers. There was Joe and Dolores Narr. I believe Dolores is uh, still alive uh, with a different last name. Milton Ebbins and his wife, Lynn Sherman, the vocalist, they're both gone. And George Bullets Durgham, who is also now gone. So Gary, you know, one of the other things that we get asked a lot about, and it's in almost every single documentary, is the famous line, her last lines that say, say goodbye to Pat, say goodbye to Jack the president, and say goodbye to yourself because you're a good guy. Was that really what she said? Well, this is what we know. That quote comes from uh, a We magazine article from 1975 in which Lawford is allegedly making this statement to the journalist. Now, if you look at the original investigation in Marilyn's death, Peter Lawford was in the newspaper in many articles in the week following Marilyn's death. And the reason for that was the police were investigating who her last contacts were, any ingoing or outgoing calls, because they were hoping that interviewing those who spoke to her would provide insight into uh, Marilyn intentionally or accidentally overdosing. And they were also looking to see if any conversations might have been a trigger for her to um, make an attempt on her life or take her life. So in what Lawford actually said to those investigating, and, and let me just point out that the Los Angeles Police Department interviewed Lawford again in 1975 based upon this interview. And those documents are discoverable and we can all access them. And what Lawford said to the police was that he believed Marilyn sounded depressed and over-medicated. Her voice was slurred and she faded out and the phone went dead. So he did not disclose that quote from We Magazine to the police in 1975. And then he was interviewed again during the reinvestigation in 1982. And he basically repeated the same of what he said in 1975. So um, he doesn't take responsibility for that quote uh, when the police are interviewing him. It comes out of the We Magazine journalists. Is there anything else you want to add before we close this episode out? Well, I, I think I want to just draw the analogy with the question of why did Marilyn Monroe die young under these circumstances, you know, trying to look for one answer. And it, it just reminds me of the investigation into what caused the Titanic to sink. There was a, just a constellation of a lot of factors and contributing events. And so when we look at Marilyn's death, we see we see the same constellation of many things that led to it. And, and if one thing were maybe different, it might have changed the final outcome. But we've talked about the medications. 
We've talked about the psychiatric condition. We talked about prescribing practices. We've talked about people who heard her in distress and the decisions that they took. You know, it begins to build and build and build upon itself. And so it's not just necessarily one thing or one person or one situation we need to look at. We really need to look at all of these contributing factors. And that's what we intend to do. You know, our goal is to provide all of this information, much of it, which has not been spotlighted, but which is extremely pertinent and important information in trying to make a conclusion. And ultimately, the goal is for our audience and our listeners to sort through that information, provide it in an unbiased way, and to draw conclusions. Yeah, their own conclusion. I think that's really important. And speaking of conclusions, you actually have a third book coming out to complement book three in the Icon series. So tell us about this. Icon, The Lifetimes and Films of Marilyn Monroe, the third volume, The Death Investigation. I've been asked by my readers to do this for many years. And I have to say, Nina and Randall, I have resisted I have resisted doing this because I, in all of my my research and writing on Marilyn, I did not want to focus upon her death. Um, I really wanted to focus on her life and her resilience. But I feel at this point, I can no longer sidestep this because I have access to a lot of important information that, that I want to share. This information is, has been available to many others who have dismissed it. So I, I really want the public to see that because I think it's it's important, it's available, and there's no reason to hide it. And I think it will ultimately push aside uh, so much information and so yeah. many nonsense. I just and feel a responsibility out. to do it. You're one of the most beloved biographers of Marilyn. And I think that it says the reason why is because you, you do take the time to accurately flush out anything that may just be a rumor. And you and I have gone back and forth on things and, you know, you'll say, Nina, yeah, but look at it this way. And it's, I think that's what we have to do. I mean, there's so easy in the age of quick bites, right. To literally just take it as fact and to, in this case, particularly because it's been so many years and this new book is coming out on her 60th anniversary of the year of her yes. 60th anniversary. Right? I have a deadline. It has to be edited <laughs> and released before August of 2022. So I've been working feverishly on it. I took a break for a long time and I think I disappointed many people, but I wasn't in the in the um, the space to be able to do it. But I'm, I'm really feeling like I am in the space and it's moving along really um, beautifully right now. And I, and I think the readers will enjoy it. And I'm really enjoying putting it together. We're all excited. And, uh, you know, we'll be doing um, hopefully more and more of these episodes. But as you can tell, you know, with sound effects and actors and sound design and editors, it's a much more elaborate production. So Randall, why don't you bring us to our next step with our listeners and what we're inviting them to do? Well, as we're coming to the close of this episode, I feel it's really important that we kind of let people know that we started off with the period of 1961, and we we really focused a lot on these last two years of Marilyn's life, and now we're ending on her last day. But in the season two that we have planned, we're going to do something that's never been done before. I don't think anyone's really covered Marilyn's adolescence. And 
we looked at in in season one her childhood and the trauma that resulted from that. In season two, we're going to explore the change in Marilyn when how she overcame that traumatic childhood and started to build a life for herself and build uh, an identity and those people in her life that help her to do that. So this is a period of her life from age eight or nine to the period of when she was married at age 16. So there's really never been a TV show or a movie that's highlighted these years. And I can tell you from what we now know, Gary's research, my research, um, things that we have from auction, this is an extremely important period to look at because this is the beginning of Marilyn Monroe. It begins here. So this is what we want to show you and have you here in season two. So we're very excited about it. We've got a lot of these episodes mapped out. But what we need now is, for all of you listeners, is we really need your support in moving forward. We've gone through a lot of expense to do these episodes. Uh, there's <laughs> Just been, a little bit. Yeah, there's been a lot of um, people donating time and there's a lot to creating these. So we really want to ask your help by sharing this podcast, giving us reviews, rating the show, and we're going to start doing something else. And that is we're going to set up a crowdfunding place that you can donate to the show and be a part of the second season. And we're going to be providing more information about that in the near future to you. And on that crowdfunding place that we will detail some of the things that we're going to do and that you will be supporting. And we'll have some really nice gifts for those people who support us. Everyone that does so will help us move faster in terms of getting these episodes produced. Because here's the thing. Everybody wants to go to the last day and there's so much more involved in this. And I can't tell you, you know, we've gotten emails, particularly now that they know that this episode is out. Oh my gosh, this is my favorite podcast. I mean, you know, we've been getting these wonderful, wonderful emails and posts and comments. So if you really do love it, um, you know, helping us out to, to get these episodes out, it is really a labor of love and we're trying to do it right and not sensationalize. So with that, um, we're going to ask you for your support. You'll be hearing from us very very shortly, but let's hold a good thought, not only for Marilyn, but for this podcast as well, that we can continue in season two. Thank you everyone for listening and being a part of this journey for us. We've really enjoyed producing these for you and looking forward to doing more. As we always end all of our Facebook lives and uh, some of our interviews, let's say farewell the way we do with Marilyn. In 2021, hold a good thought for Marilyn and be sure to hold a good thought for yourself and be kind to yourself and to others. For the complete experience of our series, visit our website at BehindTheIcon.com where you can listen to every episode and also follow the story through historical photographs, videos, and exclusive anecdotes. You can subscribe on the website to join our community and get special updates about the series. On Facebook, search Marilyn Behind the Icon and stay connected to our social posts. Subscribe to the audio series of Marilyn Behind the Icon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you're listening now. We'd love for you to give us a review or rating if you're enjoying what you're hearing. 
You can also support the show and the production by checking out the offers from the advertisers and sponsors you hear in the show or find on our website. This dramatic audio series is based on the two-volume biography by author Gary Vitaco Robles titled Icon, The Life, Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe.